and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. With apologies, you'll hear that the recording starts a little scratchy for some reason, but it all sorts itself out within the first five minutes. Today, we're thrilled to be talking to Timothy Gartnash. Timothy is Professor of European Studies at the University of Oxford and a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He's also the author of 10 books of history, including his latest, a new edition of The Magic Lantern, about the revolution of 1989. We've known each other many years and last came together to discuss Timothy's multi-year and multi-country project around freedom of speech, which is called Free Speech Debate, links in the show notes. But today we want to talk about Timothy's recent long essay in Prospect magazine, which came out just before Christmas, on the future of liberalism, a sort of manifesto for the renewal of liberalism. In it, Timothy, you argued that liberalism was under some threat, both at home, inside Western liberal democracies, and abroad in the context of China's growing developmental authoritarianism, as you called it. You also propose some solutions for combating those threats. That's, I think, what we want to get into today. But can I ask you quickly, just before we kick off, to define in broadest possible terms what you mean by liberalism, and then we can perhaps look at how um, the threats that it's under. So liberalism is a very broad tradition of both theory and practice. Um, built around the central idea of freedom, of individual liberty. The clue is in the name. And it is, as I say in the essay, a kind of treasure trove, an experimental history of multiple different ways of trying to maximize individual liberty in a given society. Um, So it's a very rich and and broad tradition, but more recently, we've often used the term in what I call small L liberalism to be those things that liberal democracies have in common. So in this sense, it's not just people called big L liberals. You can have liberal conservatives and liberal social democrats, liberal Christians and liberal secularists. Understood. There's a long history of liberalism. You describe this liberalism in a broad, broad terms. Can we talk a little bit about where you think these threats are coming from? Indeed. Um, I think that there are three dimensions to it. One is that, as we all know, we live in what is quite likely to be the Chinese century. There is a new superpower which has an alternative model of modernity, an authoritarian model of modernity, and several other authoritarian powers around the world. Secondly, there's what I would call the anti-liberal counter-revolution. In much of the world, we had 20, 25 years 
since 1989, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, of what I would call liberal revolution. And now, as so often happens in history, you have the counter-revolution, the forces that feel excluded, uh, reduced, threatened, pushed back. And then the third component, which, which as it were, strengthens the counter-revolution, is the actual failings of the liberalism or what has passed for liberalism over the last 30 years. But to a significant degree, and I think this is worth saying, Corey, um, this is not a problem of our failures. In a sense, it's a problem of our successes. What I mean by that is, is that the fall of the Berlin Wall didn't just open the door to the transition to free markets, some version of multi-party democracy, uh, pluralism, civil society, and so on in Eastern Europe. It actually opened the door to a, a worldwide wave of globalization and liberalization, the two of them going together. And that wave spread very wide, deep into the former Soviet Union, into Asia, into Africa, into Latin America, such that 10 years ago, we had more liberal democracies in the world than ever before in history. That's what I mean by the, the liberal revolution. And in that context, therefore, a backlash. One, perhaps that liberal power itself overreaches itself. And two, that in, that in many, as we see across Western Europe, but as we see across many other different parts of the world as well, that backlash against um, against the success of, of uh, the, the, the speed and the speed of the success of liberal democracy, leaving large gaps in its wake. Is that what you're describing? That's exactly right. And it's partly because capitalism and particularly the, the globalized financial capitalism we, we had in the 1990s and 2000s, which of course also led us into the financial crash of 2008, was a revolutionary force, as, as Karl Marx himself described. I mean, it changed people's lives very quickly and very fundamentally. And part of the, of the reactionary part, in the little, literal sense, the counter-revolutionary part, is people saying, too much, too fast. This is all going, I, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my bearings. I don't recognize my country anymore. And reaching back to old familiar identities around the nation, the church, the family, tradition. Um, that's part of the story. But another part of the story is that this was actually a one-dimensional liberalism. It was economic liberalism, markets as a solution for everything, not just market economy, but market society, and neglected the cultural, the social, and to some extent, the political dimensions of liberalism. You have a wonderful quote by Mary Shelley in your article, which says something like, nothing is so painful to the human mind as a great and sudden change. The one, the one novel that I read, and it's perhaps more a memoir than a novel, in fact, it's called Memoirs of an Anti-Semite, and it's the only piece of writing that has made me actually understand, perhaps more, even empathize with that anti-Semitic current in um, post-First World War, uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Again, describing a moment in history in which everything was washed away, a 
huge gaps of meaning and purpose and order emerge across the social landscape and a desperate return or desperate yearning for a calmer time of 800 years of Habsburg Empire in that instance. Um, yeah. It's a the, wonderful book, Gregor von Rizzori, great book. A wonderful book, exactly. Are we in some similar moment today or have we been in some similar moment today for the last 10 years or so? I, we haven't just had a world war and that's an important point. Uh, so history doesn't repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes. Um, I, I, I think that we, we are in a moment where something that we thought finished for good after 1945, namely far-right movements, um, something that is, if not fascist, proto-fascist, uh, is making a very uncomfortable comeback. Uh, and to that extent, um, you know, I, I think there is, there is an element of repetition in it. I think one other dimension of this is really worth mentioning because everyone now talks about inequality and they cite the Gini coefficient and they're talking about income inequality. Yeah. But it's not just economic. If you look at the way inequality plays out, it's geographical. It's the north of England. It's the Rust Belt in the US. It's the poorer southeast of Poland. It's East Germany. And it's cultural. It's the great divide in our society between people who have higher education and people who don't. By the way, one of the best predictors of who voted for and against Brexit, who voted for or against Trump. So it's, it's multiple forms of divide opening up in, in our society, not just economic. And here, the idea, the core idea would be that um, liberalism, in its sort of brutish, purely economic sense, which was the most successful export of liberalism over the last 20 years, exacerbated these underlying inequalities across societies. And um, by accelerating, by, um, by massively stimulating um, those inequalities, have led to a return to, as you say, these very uncomfortable, frightening echoes of, of uh, the first half of the 20th century's politics. Yes, but, but, but uh, it's not just the revolutionary force of what is conventionally called neoliberalism or, you know, free markets for everything. There's an aspect which is very much present in liberalism, which is the value it places on uh, education, on uh, merit. And the problem is that what was originally an emancipatory idea, let's get more and more of our kids into education and that will make them, you know, not only better educated, but better people and uh, enhance social mobility and actually make it in many ways a more equal society has ended up almost doing the reverse, dividing our societies in two halves, so roughly one half that's gone to university gone to live in the big city, is cosmopolitan, metropolitan, loves traveling, embraces globalization, and the half that's left behind um, in post-industrial cities or small towns or the Rust Belt or wherever it may be without higher education. And within that, there was uh, an element of, and I'm now going to use a rather unfamiliar term, but it's quite a useful one, epistocratic contempt. 
So epistocracy is the rule of the knowledgeable, the rule of the educated. And in a phrase like Hillary Clinton's notorious, the basket of deplorables, you have that epistocratic contempt perfectly captured. Um, so that one of the things that populists pick up on is, of course, a hostility to so-called political correctness. Um, because one manifestation of epistocratic contempt is denouncing people for saying in often not politically correct language um, what they're saying. You talk to a right-wing reaction here against the advances of liberalism. But is there a left-wing one as well? One of the things that we've seen in the divide that you've just described between those who have been to university, therefore part of this epistocratic elite, and those who um, have not, sort of is a, is a divide between, in many cases, left and right in both the UK, US, and, and Western, Western Europe. But what we're also sort of seeing here is a now very large number of people who have been to these universities and do not find the jobs that they might have expected, or at least not the social credit, the, 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 the financial rewards that they would have enjoyed as well. And many on the right and center-right would also identify a sort of hint of anti-liberalism in some of those responses on the left as well. I think that the, the attack on cancel culture, deplatforming, part of these, this culture war debate would frame a leftist response to liberalism as anti-liberal too. Do you buy that? There is definitely an illiberal liberalism, a liberalism which says that only liberal views are allowed in the acceptable public sphere, that narrows the so-called Overton window of what can be expressed in public very quickly. The Overton window is this idea that there is a range of ideas or policies that are acceptable to the mainstream at any given time. Indeed. Um, just to the spectrum of liberal views, as they define it, is no liberalism at all, because at the very heart of liberalism is the notion of freedom of thought, freedom of speech, such that uh, we have the battle of ideas, and out of that battle of ideas emerges, you know, may the better ideas win. So that is certainly present, and I think there's an element of generational change there. Many of my students would um, be rather suspicious even of the notion of free speech, which 50 years ago was a slogan for young people from the left, and is now, alas, all too often seen as a slogan of old people from the right. So I think that is going on. Simultaneously, something else is going on, namely that, as you say, um, they are a precariat. They don't see the certain futures that the generation of the baby boomers saw. And they see and abhor the massive inequalities in our society. And therefore, they actually embrace socialism. Many of my students would now self-identify as socialists. So I think those are two rather distinct things that are often happening at the same time in the same generation. So this sort of anti-liberal tendency um, when it comes to your students deplatforming the culture wars, etc. 
I wonder whether it parallels, or if it doesn't, how it's dissimilar from trends we see around the world um, that point to growing youth dissatisfaction with democracy itself. Roberto Foa at Cambridge has uh, produced a very detailed report with the Bennett Institute there, um, which highlights some of these, I think, to me, quite shocking figures, something like three quarters of Latin American young people are deeply dissatisfied with democracy. Do these things go together? Is there a link here? How do you how how would you translate this? How where do you think this comes from? So I mean, just to be clear, I think the things we've just been talking about are much less of a threat to liberal democracy than Donald Trump or Viktor Orban, let alone Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. We have to keep right. the proportions. And and the trick of the populists, of course, is to combine in their program. A, a, a culture and ideology of the right, nationalist, reactionary, conservative, with social policies that that borrow heavily from the left, and so that you know it, that that is the the way they manage to win the first election, and then they start um, uh, 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 changing the rules, so it's easier to win the next election. I, I and I think that's important to say, you know, in the first instance that that's. That that's a bigger threat. I hear you and um, and agree with you. But I wonder, given you spent so much time with students, whether there is anything else that you'd flag as being sort of part of the mix, part of the recipe for this yes. growing growing disillusionment with liberalism and, and democracy on some level. I, I mean, I mean, part of it is to be young is to kick against the pricks, and the pricks in this particular context are liberals, right? The dominant <laughs> mode of established academia, the media to a significant degree of our whole societies, and certainly their parents is broadly speaking liberal. And in a sense, we've had too little battle of ideas over the last uh, 20, 25 years. And so it's, it's perhaps unsurprising that people want something else and find attractive and interesting um, ideas of socialism. I mean, I talked to one of my students the other day and said, who, who are they reading? And he said, well, they're reading, you know, Karl Marx and Rosa Luxemburg, hmm. um, which felt sort of ridiculous in 1989 at the end of communism. But, but that's all back a, 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 as, an, as an alternative to a certain liberal orthodoxy. The other thing, and this I think is, you know, one of the things liberals are traditionally good at is, is, is listening to their critics and um, wanting to hear the strongest version of the opposing argument is something John Stuart Mill was very keen on. And so I read with great care and attention the critiques of liberalism. And there's a man called Patrick Deneen who wrote a book, which I don't think is a terribly good book, but it has one really interesting idea in it. He says, the trouble is liberalism became identified with the successful, the rich, the established, and the powerful. And he said what we got was liberalocracy, the rule of the liberals. And that's, I think, what a lot of students and young people in our societies are sensing. And liberalism should never be that. The whole idea of liberalism was that it was a political philosophy and practice which was designed to help the weaker and poorer members, more vulnerable members of society, to have an equal chance.
That's fascinating. So on the one hand, we've covered now a part of those left behind by this tremendous progress of liberalism over the course of the last 30 years um, all, all over the world. Big gaps, both obviously Rust Belt, North of England, all those areas untouched by the benefits of globalization, and also to a much smaller degree, of course, a young generation who may feel that, um, one, the establishment isn't doing anything like as good a job as they, 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 they'd like it to, but also feel disenfranchised from some of the benefits that liberal produced for their parents' generation. That's, in a sense, the left behind. There's also, and you've touched on it just now, this idea that, in fact, liberalism may have um, over-succeeded. Um, it's one of the points you made at the beginning of this podcast. Um, Stephen Holmes, Professor Stephen Holmes, who, like you, spent a lot of time looking deeply at the revolutions in Eastern Europe and the, the, the sort of narrative of democracy and liberalism in Eastern Europe, talks about liberalism's failure insofar as it preferred hegemony over pluralism. You talk to that a little bit with this idea of the liberalocracy. Do you think that's do you think that's fair? Do you think that actually liberalism just got and liberals got too happy being too in power and actually did block up areas of of debate which they should have kept open? I absolutely think that. And I there I think two again distinct elements to this. One is uh as it were, theoretical. Liberalism and pluralism are two distinct things in a certain tension with each other. Isaiah Berlin, one of my great maitre pensee, one of my great mentors, one of his, perhaps his central intellectual enterprise was to try to combine liberalism and pluralism, which means giving lots of space for um, non-liberal and even anti-liberal ideas. And what Isaiah argues is that there's a pluralistic liberalism, ich bin ein Berliner, as I like to say, and then there is a monistic, uh, over-systematic, centralizing, rationalistic, technocratic liberalism, which he traces back to one element of the Enlightenment. And and that's something we always need to to look out to, to watch out for, and that ends in liberalocracy. Um, the other thing that has gone on is more, as it were, practical and uh, political, which is that liberals, left liberals of the Tony Blair and Bill and Hillary Clinton persuasion, got very close to. Um, the financial services sector and to what one might well call a sort of plutocracy. And therefore, liberalism has become associated with what I genuinely believe. Forgive me if I sound like a revolutionary socialist, but I genuinely believe is a kind of corporate plutocratic oligarchic stranglehold on many of our states. The absolute, the absolutely outsized role played by money in American politics, but also in British politics. The fact that a very slightly dodgy donor to the Conservative Party is elevated into the House of Lords, a part of the British Parliament, of the legislature, despite the House of Lords Appointments Committee saying that he was not a fit and worthy person to be a member of the upper house. That's just a small illustration of that stranglehold. 
that brings us very helpfully to to some of the suggestions that you make for fixing this problem. Perhaps let's call it less of a problem and this necessity for a kind of a renouveau, as you describe it, a renewal of liberalism, a kind of a reassertion of what it really means and how it can really help the largest number of people. You take in your essay, you quote Pierre Asner, a French-Romanian political philosopher, as saying, I hope I get this roughly right, humanity can't live by liberty and universality alone. Obviously, liberty and universality being two broadly agreed principles of liberalism. And you say we need two other fundamental needs for liberalism to properly take hold and to properly deliver its benefits. On the one hand, equality and solidarity, some notion of the common good. And on the other, community and identity, some sense of belonging, of being part of something bigger than oneself. You frame it even more specifically, and you say we all need to become conservative socialist liberals. Timothy, what do you mean? So I'm riffing there off a famous essay written by the Polish philosopher Leszek Kowalkowski in 1978, uh, How to Be a Conservative Liberal Socialist. And I'm turning it round. Liberal is now the, la the noun. Conservative and socialist are the adjectives because of those two pairs of, of ideas, values, needs, that you mentioned, solidarity and equality are typically associated with the left and community and identity more typically with the right. So what I'm saying is that we liberals, small l, uh, have to borrow generously from both the left and the right to achieve this renewal of liberalism that we clearly need. Solidarity and equality I mean, I absolutely think that we have to look at tax, particularly on the very rich, uh, and particularly on wealth, not just on income, because the biggest inequalities of, in many developed societies now are those of inherited wealth. So one of the ideas I mentioned is a universal minimum inheritance, that the state should arrange for everyone to have a minimum startup capital, if you will, at the beginning of their professional life, which I think is a lovely idea, but also thinking about geographical inequality and educational inequality, what the current British government, which I thoroughly dislike, but nonetheless, I think rightly calls leveling up. I mean, leveling up is much more of a classic liberal idea than leveling down. Ralph Dahndorf, another of my great mentors and friends, used to say what liberalism wants to create is a common floor from which everyone can rise. And that goes to issues like, what do we do educationally and in terms of training for the 50% of our societies who aren't going to university? So that's the solidarity and equality bit where you're, where you're going to ideas which many would strongly associated with the left. On the other hand, community and identity. You know, one of the things I say, Tori, is that we liberals, cosmopolitan, metropolitan liberals, quite rightly talked a lot about the other half of the world. We didn't talk enough about the other half of our own societies. We talked a lot about the international community, but very little about the national community. 
And I actually think that a liberal patriotism, a civic liberal national pride is another very important part of the renewal of liberalism that we need. Can I jump in there? You say, um, you say in your essay, the nation is just too important and too strong in its emotional appeal to be left to the nationalists, which is a lovely phrase. Um, I instinctually recoil from the idea of nationalism at all. I am precisely what you've described, metropolitan, cosmopolitan, multi-passport holding, multi-language speaking like you, um, and find it very difficult to box myself into a particular nation with a Jewish heritage, also find that frightening for all sorts of reasons. Is there not an argument that the kind of patriotism, the kind of civic friendship is built into, into ideas of common good? Could it not work either at a much larger or at a much smaller level? And what I really mean is, can one build liberal patriotism in supranational states, which allow for much smaller communities of people to get together with the protections of a larger one. I am obviously talking about the Habsburgs that we spoke about before, the Ottoman Empire, and very specifically in post-Brexit Britain of the European Union. But not instead of, rather as well as. I mean, if you just look at the COVID pandemic, how everyone, but everyone, even the most integrated countries in Europe instinctively turned to their national government, and indeed borders were closed initially all over Europe. Uh, I, I, Ralph Dandorf used to say that the best guarantor we have so far had of individual liberty is a constitutional liberal nation state. And I believe that remains true, but there's a crucial difference between nationalism and patriotism. Patriotism is about the love of your own country, your patria. Nationalism adds on the hatred of other people's countries. Uh, patriotism allows absolutely for multiple identities. Uh, it allows people to be Londoners, English, British, and European, Catholic, but also liberal. Um, and those are the two key points I think we have to insist upon as in our liberal patriotism. Number one, that it's love of your own country, not hatred of other peoples, which of course is what the populists and nationalists exploit. And number two, that it's not exclusive. It's as well as and. So we have multi-layered identities, as I very much do. I self-identify, as people now says. So the phrase people now yeah. use, I identify as um, an English European. Is there something about size? <laughs> Does size matter? Is that the reason that Ralph Darendorf described these constitutional nations as being the great guarantors of individual liberty? Do, do, do you get to a certain size after which it's just too difficult to look after minorities? Or do you get to a certain smallness after which um, it's just too difficult to protect the citizens? Well. Obviously, size and distance matters to some extent. I mean, philosophers distinguish between thick and thin ties, don't they? And clearly, my ties to my wife and children are thicker than those to people in, uh, you know, out of Mongolia. But I, I don't think size is the crucial thing, because actually you can have strong patriotic identities in very large countries like the United States. 
I, I've never forgotten he, reading the story of a, uh, an American woman who was actually freezing to death on a mountainside. Uh, when they found her, she was, she was almost gone. And in her, her desperate state, she kept repeating three things. Don't leave me. Why are you doing this to me? And I am an American. And the sort of the deepest thing in her identity at that death door was, I am an American. And so I think that you can have quite deep patriotic identities in quite large countries. Russia would be another example, China, India, again. I think it is about the organization of the political community. America is one of those countries, I think, of France and China, and I'm sure many others, with a verbalized, explicit description of what it is. Britain, for example, is very much not that. It's a, it's a nation of mores, perhaps, rather than a nation of, constitu nation of constitution. Is there a difference between the kind of patriotism solicited by one versus the patriotism solicited by the other? You will remember that once upon a time, the British Prime Minister Gordon Brown launched an enterprise to define British identity. And that always seemed to me in itself a rather un-British activity. Right. Because the point about Britishness is precisely that it's this baggy duffel coat of rather undefined identity. All you have to do is to be able to talk about the weather and vaguely admire the Queen and maybe football. Um, I, I think it, honestly, I think it comes in multiple variations. I mean, I, I think it is true that new states and very large states tend to need more explicit codes, just as I'm told that companies after mergers, when they become much larger, need explicit codes. Um, but what I think is, is key here is the relationship of rights and duties. You give something to the national political community and you receive something back from the national political community. And the challenge for supranational communities like the European Union is to keep that balance, right? So one of the big problems with the Eurozone is it felt it was out of kilter for people who were suffering in the Eurozone crisis in, in Greece or other South European countries. Right. Okay. So with all this, are you optimistic over the over the next 10 years you talked about the 21st century as many do as the, the century of china can liberalism survive in a world order in which it's not the most powerful ideology neither necessarily financially nor even militarily where china is promoting as you say a, a model of modernism that's very very different from the liberal one and doing so very successfully across um the middle east southeast asia africa um can liberalism survive? How does liberalism survive in that in this sort of multipolar world again? So my formula is always the famous pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, because intellectually, for the reasons you have given, and add to that climate change and the drama that is likely to unleash in our societies and possibly the need for much more compuls compulsion to combat it, 
and something you know very well, Tori, which is a digital re revolution now leading on to AI, which is another huge challenge. So intellectually, one could have quite good grounds for pessimism, but the pessimism would become a self-fulfilling prophecy if one didn't have the optimism of the will, if one didn't believe that, some, that individual freedom was something uniquely valuable, which it's worth fighting for. And that self-belief, that will, is a strength in itself. Uh, it's one of the great strengths of liberalism, that people actually believe in it and believe this thing is worth fighting for. Um, and where I see real signs for optimism is in societies which have been unfree for some time. So the most moving and most courageous movements for freedom are now in Belarus, once called the last European dictatorship, where we've seen the most amazing popular movement for freedom in freezing conditions against fierce repression going on for months. In Hong Kong, I think now in Russia, we were speaking as Alexei Navalny has just returned to Russia. And so I think there is, as well as other patterns in history, an element of a kind of wave movement, almost a cyclical movement, where a turn to dictatorship in time generates its own resistance. So as people start yearning again for freedom, as in Belarus, as in Russia, as in Hong Kong, and by the way, to a significant degree in China. And I would add one other thing to that. You know, I've now been in two great universities for many decades, Oxford and Stanford. In that time, I've had so many students from all over the world, including China and Russia, fantastic students who've loved being in, you know, free, lively universities in a free country. And while they don't all immediately become dissidents. They're all waiting there. And when the change begins to come, believe me, they will be on the streets and in the institutions, um, moving the dial back towards freedom. So a, a, a parallel question to that would be, in the aftermath of a failed coup, if we think that's what it was, or at least an attempt to take the capital, on, capital in the US, do you think that the that America, which has led the cause of liberalism for the last hundred years or so, do you think it starts to take a back seat? One, I suppose, first question, do you think it recovers from this quite extraordinary four years of Trump presidency and whatever is in store for us in its aftermath? And do you think that the mantle of liberalism moves? Does it shift? Does it become European again? Or to your point, is it actually picked up and most developed in these parts of the world where its absence is most keenly felt. So you're absolutely right to distinguish between those two things, democracy's recovery in the United States and the United States as, to use the cliche, leader of the free world. For the first, uh, it does seem to me that American democracy has survived an enormous challenge, arguably one of the most serious challenges in its entire history, it is coming through. But if you look at the problems, the structural problems of the US system, from a 
deeply dysfunctional political system with the separation of powers becoming you know a, a blockage to reform to the most expensive but by certainly not the most effective health system in the world to its battered infrastructure to its very poor uh, primary and secondary public education and the most acute form of the two realities problem the worlds of media and social media separated out into two competing rea realities so that tens of millions of americans can actually believe that trump won the election or at least that the election was fraudulent mm -hmm. if you look at all that accumulation of problems it's very hard to see the united states come charging back as it did after vietnam and watergate let me remind you yeah. when the reputation of the united states was you know was very low and that means that i don't think the city upon a hill the leader of the free world the shining model democracy in which joe biden seems to believe is coming back anytime soon we need the united states still we need a strong liberal dem democratic europe but actually the key players what i call in my book free speech the swing states will be countries like australia Japan and India, the democracies actually in Asia, in the other half of the world, and I would say also countries like Brazil, maybe South Africa. And so my vision for the future is that of a West that goes beyond the traditional West. It, what we really need to look for is a network of democracies around the world in which countries outside the traditional core West will be at least as important as the United States or poor old Brexit Britain. Timothy, many thanks indeed for taking us on this extraordinary tour d'horizon of liberalism in, uh, in 2021. Um, it's been an immense pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking the time. Great pleasure. Too. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes and if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.